Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankine on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayer on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie movie changed me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. In 1972, Maribai Bush writes, I was a 30-year-old American traveling in India with the smell of incense in my hair and mantras repeating in my ears. Back then, if you had told me that I would someday be training employees of corporate America to apply contemplative practices to help them become more successful, I would have said you'd been standing too long in India's hot noonday sun. Yet as soon as Mirabai Bush returned to the U.S. in 1973, she started a company called Illuminations and was featured alongside a young Steve Jobs in Fortune magazine. More recently, she helped create Google's wildly popular employee program, Search Inside Yourself. Mirabai Bush is called in to work with educators and judges and social activists and soldiers. Her odyssey from India to now tells a defining narrative of our time. And it's not just a story of tools that help us be more successful. It's a rediscovery and reclaiming of contemplation in many forms and many traditions in the secular thick of modern life. In the beginning, you couldn't ever say what the environmental leaders would call the L word. And (laughs) the L word was love. And it's really when someone's heart opens that things really change. I have been more and more willing to take the risk to offer those practices, even in just very secular working situations recently than I used to be. Because... People really want to be loved, it turns out. And um, it always edges on sounding like a Hallmark card, but I have found it to be very powerful if you can find the right way to do it. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Mirabai Bush is co-founder and former director of the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. She's just written a new book together with Ram Das, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying. We spoke in 2015. So I wonder, how would you start to describe what the spiritual background of your childhood, of your life, your early life? Well, my early life, I was brought up Catholic, and when I was seven, my father left, and my mother had to go to work. And this is right after the war, I have to say, the Second World War. (laughs) (laughs) It used to be the war. And um, there wasn't daycare, so my mother would drop me off at the church, and I'd go to Mass every morning, and then I'd just go right over to the school. They were Mm -hmm. both across the street from us. So I was a in church every morning for my whole childhood. And um, I think you know that Catholic children are part of the way morals and ethics are taught is through the models of the lives of the saints. Right. So there were a lot of really pretty extraordinary and some preposterous stories of saints. But I really loved um, Joan of Arc. Yeah, I read that. And (laughs) I think it's such an interesting idea that Joan of... And so I'm just wondering, how does Joan of Arc inspire the aspirations of a girl in Madison, New Jersey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for one thing, her life was a lot more interesting than mine. So I, I, I liked that. But she did start out as a kind of ordinary little girl. And then... 
the basics are that she started hearing God talking to her and telling her what to do. And as a little girl, you know, recognizing how confusing life is, I thought, wow, that would be so cool if you could hear what it was you were supposed to do. And um, the other thing is that she did it. She did everything she heard, no matter how, (laughs) you know, (laughs) how out there it was. So um, she... She cross-dressed and she saved France. Right. And, um, but I loved that. And so somehow that stayed with me, that sense of wanting to be able to hear clearly what it was I should be doing with my life. And um, later, when I began to learn various contemplative spiritual practices, meditation, yoga, and so on, I realized that what I loved about it was that they help you get calm, clear, open, better able to hear, you know, it no longer seems to me like Joan experienced it as a great God in heaven speaking to her. But I feel like I've been able to hear better what it is I'm supposed to be doing with my life Mm. and then, Mm. you know, doing it. That's that's really great, lovely language. You have a pretty amazing story of your own at this point, I have to say. I mean, you know, digging into all the things you did along the way. And you ended up um, kind of rediscovering contemplative tradition, I think, in in India. Um, Yes. You got there, though, it it seems to me, as a child of the 60s and kind of driven— Driven to be moving and and driven to search by your anguish at what was happening in the world. And you ended up kind of on this pilgrimage in 1969. Yes. And I think maybe later on you called it a pilgrimage. Maybe at the time. Yeah. Didn't feel quite as uh, defined. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, At the time, I was in graduate school from 67 to 70. And um, those were the years that... There was so much upheaval on campus, and I got really involved in civil rights and then in anti-war work. You know, I would drive war resistors across the Canadian border. I was in the English department, and there were extraordinary people, and it was a time when uh, people were beginning to to, uh, experiment with psychedelics and some spiritual practice, but not so much. But the whole campus was just kind of turned upside down. And then the politics of it meant that the police came onto campus and it was getting impossible. So I left just before. Uh, I had done all the work for my PhD except my dissertation and I decided to take some time off. And uh, I traveled overland from London to Delhi. That is like going backward in time. It was then before everything was so, you know, kind of globalized. Um, And it was amazing because at that time going through, you know, the former Yugoslavia and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan into India, every place was completely peaceful. (laughs) And people everywhere took us into their homes Mm. and we took a bus from from London to Delhi. It was the longest bus ride in the world. It was two months. And, uh, <laughs> wow. And it, yeah, and it cost like $400. Right. And, um, uh, <laughs> but it, then we stopped in lots of places and got to know people all along the way and also got to have some experience of their spiritual and religious practices all mm-hmm. along the way. And uh, that was really opening for me. And I expected to stay for two weeks maybe in India. We were kind of searching for meaning. Yeah. The first week I was there, I heard about a course that uh, a Burmese Buddhist teacher was offering for Westerners for the first time. It was— For the very first time, right? A, a yeah, very first course time. for Westerners, yeah. And I did that course with many other people who are still my close friends— and um, there were very few Westerners then. I mean, there'd been the British Raj, and then there was a big gap, and then there right. was us. You know, I think you did say this a minute ago, but what you discovered, how would you talk about what you discovered in that experience of a serious introduction mm-hmm. to contemplation, to meditation? First, you know it's hard to talk about. I know, so. yeah. Um, but <laughs> well, the m- most basic thing that 
I could look inside myself and learn about the nature of the mind and the nature of the world. I was a literature student. I had read, you know, a thousand books probably. And I was mm. always looking outside for more ideas and, you know, more critical understanding and more content. We didn't call it content then. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we called it literature. Right. <laughs> and so just looking within was really stunning. And then that first course was from 5 in the morning till 10 at night. And um, little by little, you know, I started getting really quiet and still. Uh, of course, all kinds of things came up. But I really began to see that I was not my mind. I was not my body. I was those things, but I was also awareness. I began to see the basic nature of the impermanence of thoughts as they rise and fall away. And I just started taking them less seriously. Mm -hmm. It was really wonderful. I felt much less dependent on finding things outside. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a kind of radical self-confidence, like I belonged here on the planet. And, <laughs> you know, and that uh, I would be able to... Uh, understand the basics of how it's all unfolding. I, th I would say that it also gave me kind of faith in the unfolding. Hmm. I like that you hmm. use the word sane faith. That's what it felt like. It felt like I had a faith in actually the way things are and that that was okay. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Mirabai Bush. Her life is a lens on a fascinating story of our time, how Buddhist meditation made its way to the West and has moved into many realms of human endeavor, also reviving contemplative practices in other traditions. Mirabai Bush actually took a corporate path out of India from 1972 to 1985 with her company called Illuminations. It made its name with silk-screened mandalas and other iconic spiritual symbols and made its fortune on the rainbow decal that became synonymous with the VW Beetle in its countercultural American heyday. You know, I hear you saying a minute ago, you said you you had a new insight into your mind and into the world. And, you know, those two things belong together, but I feel like in your thinking and in the work you've done bringing contemplative practice back out to others, you've had a very focused way of attending to the the intersection between those two things. Hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, the world that has, let's use your word, unfolded in these 40, 50 years, a big dynamic in it is these two strains of yeah. inner life and outer action kind of finding each other fitfully. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, well, were, you didn't realize that you were going to be part of this, you know, you and a lot of other mostly Jewish and some Christian kids, then kind of really importing Buddhism back into the West. It yeah. must be pretty amazing to think back on it now. This that one. It is. I mean, when we first came back, I mean, <laughs> the idea. I mean, we were so marginalized. That's to put it mildly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, we didn't quite know what to do with it. But many of us were really profoundly affected by it and felt that, in some way or other, we wanted to, well, first integrate it into our own lives fully and then share it with others. And so most of them were single and came back and wanted to teach, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and a number of other Buddhist teachers were there also, who became Buddhist teachers. But when I came back two years later, I was um, pregnant and married and uh, had a child then. So I couldn't, when we first came back, meditation, we still had the model of it being monastic. Mm. 
Mm. And so we, mm. having a child and being a meditation teacher was just no one could imagine <laughs> right. that. So, right. Uh, <laughs> so, but I was just as committed as everybody else to finding a way to bring this into um, our lives in the West. So first I started a business with my then-husband, John Bush. And, right. Was this um, the Illuminations? Um, yeah, yeah. But what I was most interested in at Illuminations was integrating this sense, not just practice, because not everybody who worked there wanted to learn to meditate. But we integrated it in ways into the business that would embody the perspective and the spirit and the values of contemplative practices. Mm So, you know, that was the beginning of the time when we were discovering, you know, it's all one. (laughs) I mean, now we recognize that it's more complicated and subtle and so on, and it is all one, and yet it's more than that. But at the time, that was radical. Yeah. So we really wanted to express it and we knew that doing it visually would be easier for people than trying to do it in words as you can appreciate. Yeah. So at Illuminations we were trying to create an organization based on principles of what they call in the East right livelihood yeah. where what you're making is wholesome and contributes to now we would say you know sustainability of the planet and the right. species and and at the same time the way in which you're doing it is helping everyone who's involved to wake up interestingly we did so many things that when i many years later arrived at google because they wanted to have a program there where their engineers could learn meditation. So many of the same things that they've recognized about what makes a person more creative, more able to uh, bring their, their whole self into work and to be able to grow from their work as well and not think of it as, you know, now I'll do my work and then I'll go home and be a real person. Right, right. So, right. But that is a shift that is still uh, still has a long way to go. Oh, for sure. In terms of American corporate culture and ideals and and practicalities. Yeah. The story of search inside yourself. First of all, I I, I love the story of how you that you had to find that language. I mean, isn't it right yeah. that when you first just were offering a meditation course or a mindfulness course, it didn't take? Yeah. Uh, actually, my friend Meng, who's now written the book on Search Inside Yourself, um, he called me up one day. I was at the still running the Center for Contemplative Mind. And he called up, and well, first of all, he said, when I was younger, he'd been through some difficult times, and meditation had really helped him. So... He'd been thinking for some time at Google that uh, it would be really great to bring into the workplace. He'd been there since almost the beginning. He was engineer number 107. (laughs) And um, when Google went public, they told their engineers that who no longer needed to work if they didn't want to, um, that they could stay. But they had to do something that would in some way advance Google's mission. But they could decide what it was. So Meng decided it was going to be bringing meditation. And he said, I posted it, and nobody signed up. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. And I heard you could help. So I went out there, and we talked, and we looked around. And what we identified was that people, employees there are all quite young, very smart, graduated at the top of their class from MIT or Stanford, um, had been in front of their screens most of their lives. So um, after talking for a whole day and figuring out what was going on there, I suggested that we could offer the same practices but emphasize the practices that, that more directly cultivate emotional intelligence and that we could frame it in a different way. And so we called it course, uh, they came up with this great name since they're the big search engine, mm-hmm. Search Inside Yourself. And then the subtitle was Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And we asked Danny Goleman, 
who also was in Bodh Gaya with us back all those years right, ago, right. Um, asked him to uh, give a talk at Google about the relation between – about why emotional intelligence is so important in the workplace and uh, the relationship between meditation and emotional intelligence. He did that, and then we posted the course, and in four hours, 140 people signed up. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, over 2,000 Googlers around the world have taken the course. And there's a lot of talk now about bringing mindfulness into the workplace and yeah. how superficial it is and how it helps bad people do bad things better. And and it doesn't help people question anything. It just makes them more satisfied with what they're doing. But this is a serious course. Mm-hmm. And when you sit down and quiet down, become calm, quiet, stable, you have to do that in order for any kind of insight to arise. And you do feel better usually, although sometimes, you know, really disturbing emotions arise. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be taken to the next kind of level of depth in order for people to begin to question, require. Right. But this course actually offers enough time, practice, and uh, teaching to help people do that. I mean, yeah. And I, th- I think that's an important and refreshing thing to name that yes, you can be a great meditator and also remain narcissistic, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this, this can be superficial and it can be abused like any, like any spiritual practice, like yeah. any political yeah. practice. Um, but, you know, Mirabai, something that really so intrigues me in, um, in your work and in some of your writing is how you the like the language of emotional intelligence that you've just been using and that's now so widely familiar, including in workplaces. Um, that what this tradition is bringing forward and bringing to the surface for modern people has, you know, has this very noble lineage. Um, you know, it's Buddhism that is the tradition that has focused on this for thousands of years. But, you know, you wrote about how in 1890, William James in The Principles of Psychology said that the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. And, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he was Buddhist, but that is the intention, right, of yeah, that is the intention. And that's just quite amazing. And then in the 70s, you had uh, somebody who actually I had never heard of, David McClelland yeah. in William James Hall, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> who became a teacher to all these figures who've gone on, especially in neuroscience, to open yeah, up this field. Yeah. Richie Davidson, Daniel Goleman, Cliff Saron, Mark Epstein. And also to me what's fascinating is that he was Quaker, and there's mm-hmm. there's something in your work, there's this thread you've pulled through in seeing that this contemplative impulse is a kind of human tradition as much as it's yeah. it's in the religious traditions. Um, in Mies van der Rohe and C.S. Lewis and the idea of beholding that goes back to Plato mm-hmm. and Heidegger. Somehow that you're just looking at your work has brought all that forward for me and it's really Chrissy really you read so much <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored <laughs> but yeah but but it's true when we started the Center for Contemplative Mind we uh, were looking for ways in which these practices might be helpful in sectors of American society other than health and healing which is where it had started right. and um, we interviewed 80 people we identified. This is in 96 and 7, so it was early. But we kind of word of mouth heard and knew a number of people in different fields who were beginning to integrate it into their work or their organizations. And we interviewed 80 people, and we asked them for what practices they were theirs and that they were teaching. or And um, we gathered these I don't know, 100 practices from all the different traditions. It, I mean, all the religious and spiritual and, of course, psychological traditions too, they are human practices. They're really about waking up to who we are, appreciating who we are, opening our hearts, recognizing compassion, recognizing that, you know, there's a way in which 
there's much that we all share, even with all of our differences, and that waking up to that can happen through these practices. So we created what we call the Tree of Contemplative Practices it's on the website. Yeah, no, I actually um, have that in front of me. Yeah, that. Yeah, and just sort of sorted out the practices and put them on there. And I would say more than anything else we've done over all these years, that has made such an impact. It's kind of like going back to the mandalas we did at Illuminations. Mm -hmm. People love to know that this basic human, that there is at the core of our being something that we all share and um, that we're all, you know, the Buddha say, every being wants to be happy. You know, um, everybody wants to wake up and become more fully who they are. And these practices have been developed over thousands of years. Yeah. And really, mindfulness exists in almost every tradition, but it's not called mindfulness. But, you know, there is a calming, quieting, centering practice that leads into insight in every tradition. Yeah, I mean, we'll, I, we'll put this tree of contemplative practices online, but, you know, I just, I just want to read, you know, some of them. First of all, there are the different branches. There's stillness, there's generative, there's creative, activist, relational, movement, ritual, cyclical. And it's everything from centering to meditation to visualization, Lexio Divina, music, contemplative arts, journaling, social justice, work and volunteering, vigils, bearing witness, Deep listening, storytelling, labyrinth, yoga, tai chi, retreats, ceremonies, and rituals. It opens up this, the, yeah. you know, it takes the idea of contemplative practice and awakening out of a box, out of any kind of narrow box. Yeah. When we, when we would share the tree or start talking about the practices with all kinds of different people, and almost always someone would say, oh, I have a contemplative practice in mm. my life, you know? Yeah. I walk silently in the woods on Saturday mornings, you know, or whatever it was. So it, the tree helped people discover that and feel that it wasn't an esoteric or foreign thing, and so then would be more open to exploring some of the other practices. After a short break, more with Mirabai Bush. We're putting all kinds of great extras into our podcast feed. Poetry, music, and a new feature, Living the Questions. You can get it all as soon as it's released when you subscribe to On Being on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Mirabai Bush. She works at an emerging 21st century intersection of industry, social healing, and diverse contemplative practices. Raised Catholic with Joan of Arc as her hero, she's one of the people who brought Buddhism to the West from India in the 1970s. She's called in to work with educators and judges, social activists, and soldiers. She helped create Google's wildly popular employee program, Search Inside Yourself. Mirabai Bush's life tells a fascinating narrative of our time, the rediscovery of contemplative practices in many forms and from many traditions in the secular thick of modern culture. So let's talk about where, like, the rubber meets the road then. <laughs> let's get back down to the granular, gritty level. Well, like, so I want to talk about the stuff, the work you do, the stuff you do in workplaces. Uh -huh. And this is Google, but it's other places as well. And You've also worked, I think, with social activists. Yeah, a lot. Well, I just remembered this year, the freshman at Amherst College 
had, they all had to choose a three-day orientation in their first week at school. And out of 400 entering students, 70 chose meditation and yoga. Huh. So there's a big change. Yeah. So um, the first day, you know, I was teaching them mindfulness and having them, you know, watch their breath, which they had just arrived on campus. They were, and they had like worked like fiends, you know, to be able to get to into get Amherst. In, These... To arrive on campus, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so I left a lot of space for, I'd say, oh, I'd teach the practice and then I'd say, so any reflections on that? Any questions? And there'd be dead silence. So, okay, we'll practice a little more. And then I'd ask again, and nobody would make themselves vulnerable enough to ask a question. So I decided, oh, better change this around. So I um, decided to give them a practice of mindfulness of an object. And I gave them each a leaf. And they were to bring their awareness to the leaf and then as distractions arose, let them go and bring your mind back to your leaf. So we did that for five or ten minutes, which is a long time to look. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you look at a leaf and you say, oh, okay, I saw it. And then you put <laughs> right. it down. And I didn't really expect that anybody was going to say anything. So I left a couple of moments at the end and nobody did. And then this one football player in the back row raised his hand and he was he had become in my mind the person who most was kind of resisting right. making himself vulnerable in any way he said can i say something i said definitely he said i love my leaf no oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was so beautiful yeah and then they all started talking about how, you know, what it was like to really look and look and look. And it just made me realize that, you know, it's so much easier to do the things that we've done, what I know that some uh, Christian groups call crimes against creation, hmm. when we're so out of touch with nature. And um, so hmm. that one moment like is kind of this window into what we need to remember in order to make the right decisions for the future. It also, um, you know, sometimes I, th- I feel like we, we've hit the 21st century, and I, I think of this as kind of spiritual technology, right? Meditation, mindfulness, and contemplation. And, yeah, um, yeah. It's almost like we like we're discovering all these other technologies, and then we're kind of waking up to this spiritual technology that we kind of just need to bring yeah. us back to our senses almost. I mean, I wonder a lot about, you know, whenever you stand in line these days or do anything that involves waiting, Yeah, um, we're all on our phones immediately. We're never alone and we're never, you know, we're always, we're always engaged with our phones. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to wonder, like, what did we used to do? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Did we? I mean, I don't know. If you're talking about looking at a leaf, but I mean, did we look around? And I mean, I know there was boredom. I don't. There's no romance attached to this, but somehow we survived and flourished. And it just <laughs> makes me wonder what was happening in our minds or inwardly then, or even in terms of our relationship to the world we were standing in. Yeah, that is completely gone now. Daydreaming, hmm. which. Research has found that daydreaming is good for your brain. Um, I don't think we do as much of that. <laughs> Teaching these students also. We, at the end of the day, we did the, the yoga and, and a deep relaxation. And, um, of course, they weren't allowed to use their phones during the day. Mm-hmm. But so I did Shavasana, deep relaxation, and everyone who's ever done a yoga class, you know, knows that's like, okay, this is the time, you know, you completely let go and you drop into the floor, you know. And <laughs> as soon as like breathing in and breathing out, about three breaths in, and I saw these arms reach out. <laughs> They went for their phones and brought lying down on right. the floor. Right. They brought their phones in front of their faces. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like the little Catholic girl in me thought it was so sacrilegious. Right. You know? <laughs> right. 
Well, but okay, so and you've done all that beautiful work with Google, and Google is part of the problem here, right? yeah. to, to the point that nothing is pure. And um, But you've also written about um, very practical like mindfulness practices, like social media practice, mindful emailing. Would you talk about that? Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, we devised that at Google. Oprah <laughs> loved that. She put it in her magazine. Okay. Um, I mean, it's so simple, but like most mindfulness practices, we don't, it's so simple and we don't do it. Um, you just type out your email, either a response or an initiating email, and then you stop, take three deep breaths, follow your breath in and out and in and out and in and out, and then you read the email. And you read it from the perspective of the person who is going to receive it. And there we were focused on emotional impact. So, you know, is this person likely to be agitated or angry or, you know, frustrated or whatever the emotion would be, negative emotion? Or maybe even is this person likely to think you uh, mean you're offering more than you actually are? What, whatever. Right. We ask them to think about it from that person's perspective and then either you know change it or not and then send. And the first time we, we did it, there was a week in between the classes. And so a week later, they came back and we said, how did it go? And... Um, they all said, that was radical. You know, it was like yeah. amazing. Yeah. And then one guy said, I did something really radical. I said, what? He said, I picked up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, there we all are emailing to the people in the next cubicle, you know. Yeah. And so uh, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Hmm. I wanted to go back for a minute because I didn't answer your question about social justice activism, really. I got off on the leaf. But one theme that comes up so often with activists is that if I give up my anger, will I lose my motivation? And it's my anger that keeps me working for this change. What, What mindfulness, compassion practices and others help with is the understanding that it's not either acting out on your anger and being driven by it on the one hand or repressing it on the other hand, but there is a way to notice your anger, begin by noticing the sensations in your body, and then notice what your anger is, see it, and Recognize it as energy, energy in your body, right. but at the same time, hold uh, compassion and equanimity for the situation because you're more likely to be able to see what can be done to make that change if you're not driven by anger because it clouds the mind. And it also makes communication with people on the other side of an issue really difficult, Yeah. whereas if you can cultivate equanimity and compassion for the situation, you're much more likely to both see interesting ways to resolve it and to be able to act on it and communicate it. We did a lot of work with lawyers and judges and yeah, that's, law students. Yeah, I was reading about that. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. That was so interesting. I mean, a special retreat for judges where they wanted to learn how to be non-judgmental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, we we laugh, but it's. Yeah. You know, it. They well, lawyers worry that can they be a zealous advocate for their client and at the same time have compassion for the person on the other side of the case, mm-hmm. and um, of course the answer is yes. And what that means, and what those judges meant, is not eliminating wise discernment. It's eliminating prejudgment, so that they judges are unbelievably overworked. They have so many people coming in front of them all day long, one after another. And they said, you know, some young guy comes up in front of me, and before I even know his name, I'm already thinking that this is probably who he is and what he's done. Right. And they can't 
not have that arise because there they are all day long hearing all this stuff. But they don't want to prejudge. They want to be really there in the moment, clear and open-minded with whomever comes before them. But it's really hard. So just being there and really listening to what's actually being said, that can be cultivated through mindfulness practice. And they yeah. loved it. Mm. Yeah. I just read in a a science magazine that the present moment as we experience it is about two to three seconds long. <laughs> kind of interesting. Right, like yeah. the, physically, like what we experience as the present moment is two to three. Yeah. And also that you can, that it can feel longer, right? Which is also yeah. something meditators have said. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that you can also completely not be there. <laughs> you can just yes. miss it. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Buddhist teacher Mirabai Bush, who works at the intersection of industry, social healing, and diverse contemplative practices. You know, you said a minute ago, like with everything with mindfulness and contemplative practice, it's so obvious and in some ways easy, but we don't do it. And uh, and I have to say, like for myself, I have um, I've had many experiences across the years uh, in different settings, retreat settings, or something less intense. Where I mean, the irony is that a even a kind of one-off contemplative experience can be instantaneously gratifying, right? It can be yeah. just transformative. And now there's even all this science about how good it is for us on these very basic yeah. biological levels and stress and all of that. But it's very hard to create this habit. And it has been hard for me. I I have recently, I wanted to ask you about this since I have you, you know, I recently decided that I could do six minutes in the morning while my tea steeps, which just seems so pathetic. But... but it's, yeah, it's been, as you it's said, it's perfect. outside time. Yeah. And I wonder, um, I want to ask you, because you work with so many different practices. I mean, are there, is this something where you really do have to find the way that works for you? Yeah. And, well, at the center, we, we've done all kinds of things. I mean, we've had retreats where we've offered, you know, we've had a Buddhist teacher and a... Jewish teacher teaching traditional Jewish practices, Brother David teaching Christian practices, yeah. um, someone doing Sufi chanting. We've done it that way. And then invite people to find something from all of that that works for them. Sometimes we've offered really simple practices like um, mindfulness of the breath and walking meditation and mindful listening and so on as an opening for people. And then knowing that if they begin to appreciate, they begin to appreciate the inner life and the benefit that comes from, as you said, I mean, it's amazing that they found the reduction in stress and cortisol levels after 10, 15 minutes of meditation. uh, once people begin to experience that, that they will um, find what works for them. The other thing I wanted to say is that there's so much work being done with mindfulness, and that is a great introductory practice. But what I have found, in the beginning, you couldn't ever say what the uh, environmental leaders would call the L word, and they didn't mean lesbian. They meant... meant the L word was love. And there are practices. The most used is uh, the loving kindness practice that right, Sharon right. Salzberg yeah. has really written a lot about. Right. And the compassion practices are related to that, in which you're more about appreciation for others and a desire to relieve the suffering of others. But that whole group of practices, the truth is, when I think back over all the moments of introducing these practices to all these different kinds of folks, that 
it's really when someone's heart opens that things really change. Mm. And you can't ever predict how that's going to happen. It doesn't always happen through doing loving-kindness practice. But I have been more and more willing to take the risk to offer those practices, even in just very secular working situations recently than mm-hmm. I used like to be. Loving, loving-kindness meditation. Yeah, mm-hmm. because people really want to be loved, it turns out. And, um, you know, it's hard to talk about it, and, you know, it always edges on sounding like a Hallmark card, but I have found it to be very powerful if you can find the right way uh, to do it. You've also been working with people in the Army. Yeah, they want to be loved, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, going through all this, the big thing has been just when I thought, oh, I'm beyond thinking in terms of self and other, you know, that's all us. Mm -hmm. And then I'm confronted with (laughs) another uh, invitation, like to the Army. Mm -hmm. And um, I discovered that within me, it turned out I didn't think it was all us. I thought <laughs> that they were really different. And this is you who drove draft dodgers across the Canadian border <laughs> right. 50 years ago. Right, so anti-war. Right. Yeah. But as they said to me, some of them at one point, Mirabai, the army doesn't take us to war. Civilians take us to war. We just follow orders. Hmm. Anyhow, it's a long story to talk about the army, but what I did discover is that mm-hmm. The Army's been really, military's been really good at teaching people to um, go into a situation, to see what's going on in that situation, and then to use basically as much force as possible to eliminate any threat. And that now is counterproductive in almost every setting that they find themselves in. So I worked with them when they were, you know, mainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they had to learn to go into a situation and be aware of what was going on and then use force only as a last choice. Mm. And, you know, it took deconditioning and it took some real, uh, (laughs) real mindfulness And in the process, it was really helping to support life, Hmm. save life, uh, their own and the people in the communities. And so I felt like it was a good thing to do. I mean, it sounds to me like, as you've written about that, that, I mean, dealing with people who have been at war and are sending other people into war is kind of the extreme case of being present to suffering and not overwhelmed by it or bearing witness to suffering and not taking it on. And I want to read back something you wrote about, you know, from your earliest days, you know, as un- you said, as unlikely as contemplative practice as a strategy for social change seemed to me when I arrived in India, it slowly began to look like a critical component in the creation of a more just and compassionate global society. So I wonder if you just reflect here as we finish for a few minutes on you know, in, in both lofty and practical ways about how, you know, what you've learned, like how can this kind of practice speak to those, that kind of anguish? I mean, yeah. yeah. Contemplative practice as a strategy for social change. Gosh, it sounds like if nothing else, it would might take forever. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these things are, um, it doesn't happen in a linear way. And, you know, as we, we've seen... I don't want to make a definitive statement about this, but we have seen leaps in terms of social change happen uh, at different times when a tipping point is reached. Mm -hmm. But as you ask, I realize I've been uh, working more with the strategy of working with people who are already committed to to change and helping them do it in a better way. Mm. That's one strategy of working with people who are already doing the good work. And... You know, other people will come up with other strategies. I I trust the power of these practices. I don't know about the timing, but I do know that it's one small part of helping us try to figure out how to live together.
Mirabai Bush co-founded the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society. She's the author of Contemplative Practices in Higher Education, and she's written two books with Ram Das: Compassion in Action, and more recently, Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Loving and Dying. Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, and Damon Lee. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.